0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
3: Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we will be talking all about a report that was released by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Education Fund. It coincided with the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works hearing, uh, which was called the Impact of Federal Environmental Regulations and Policies on American Farming and Ranching uh, Communities. The U.S. PERG Education Fund um, is a nonprofit working to protect consumers and promote good government. The report is titled, Reaping What We Sow, How the Practices of Industrial Agriculture Put Our Health and Environment at Risk, and it details the problems and offers common-sense solutions. One of the co-authors of that report is Kara Cook Schultz, and I'm so pleased that it has brought her to our show today. Hi, Kara.
4: Hi, Jenna. How are you?
3: Great. Thank you so much for joining me today.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: Okay. So let's start um, at the very beginning. Uh, why was this report issued and and the com- committee hearing held now?
4: Well, uh, every 10 years, uh, our, con- our congressional representatives are responsible for passing something called the Farm Bill, which outlines how much money is going to go from the U.S. government into various farming practices uh, and into uh, the farming economy. And uh, 2018 is the year where, when we're going to be talking about this farm bill and hopefully getting it passed. So it seemed like a good time for us to put out this report about the current state of farming.
3: And we're going to talk a little bit more about responses to, um, to the report from the full committee a little bit later in the show. But first, can you just give us a broad overview of kind of what you outline as the few main issues um, with our ag system today? Can you just, you know, tell us exactly what's, what's wrong with our entire food system in uh, Four Sound Bites? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Uh, I, will, I will give you some highlights or rather <laughs> yeah. lowlights. lights. Um, so a couple of things are happening in farming that I, I'm very concerned about and that our organization is concerned about. Um, the first one is the use of chemicals in farming. Uh, this year, for example, there is a what we call, scientists call a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, and this dead zone is caused by the use of nitrogen uh, and other chemical fertilizers. The dead zone is the size of Rhode Island. And like I said, it's wow. in the Gulf of Mexico, where the Mississippi River um, it, uh, flows into the Gulf of Mexico. And when I say dead zone, it's a place that is so full of uh, algae blooms that fish can't live there, other animals can't live there. It's really terrible for you know, our water, for our oceans, for our fish, and for fishermen.
5: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: so that's one huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, another problem is the use of pesticides in agriculture. Uh, We use two-and-a-half times more pesticides now than we did in the 1960s, and we haven't seen the same kind of uptick in production where we're using these pesticides. We have uh, the overuse of antibiotics on Mm -hmm. factory farms. Um, We want to make sure that our antibiotics are safe and effective on humans, but unfortunately, um, the more we use antibiotics on healthy animals on factory farms, the less likely those antibiotics are to be useful and effective on humans or humans. So those are some major problems in farming right now.
3: You write in the report that farms have become larger and more specialized. Um, What does this look like in practice and how does it kind of relate to some of the issues that we're seeing right now that you, um, you know, those three issues, for instance, that you uh, talked about?
4: I think most of your listeners will know that there's been um, a big movement in farming in the past couple of decades, uh, or the past hundred years, where we see fewer and fewer, pe- fewer people out actually farming. And there are a couple of reasons for that, but because fewer people are farming, we're seeing um, more uh, large what we would call factory farms, and um, even if it's just one, um, you know, family farmer, he's going to own more farmland than he would have 40 years ago. So in in 1987, for example, the average farm was 600 acres. It's now um, 1,100 acres. So we see an increase of, you know, about 40% since uh, just the 1980s
3: you know what is that what does that kind of look like on an everyday basis so fewer small family farms fewer vegetable production more specialized uh commodity crops
4: exactly that's exactly what we see um so uh a couple of things happen when you have these really large farms um it makes it easier to spray pesticides and to um, put nitrogen into the soil and chemical fertilizers into the soil because you just have longer rows of corn for example mm-hmm. um and then when you, and Part of the reason why we see these big, bigger farms is because um, farmers can grow much larger fields of just a few crops. So back in the 1980s, you would see um, the average farmer would grow three or more types of crops. Um, now, because it, it costs so much money um, to have the right kind of tractor, the right kind of uh, the right kind of combine, the right kind of pesticides, uh, the right kind of seeds that go with those pesticides, that costs a lot. That means you can really only grow one specialty crop, which is probably going to be corn or soy. Um, Most of the food that we grow in this country is actually corn and soy and not, you know, your idea of like vegetables and orchards. Um, So we're seeing larger farms uh, growing just one type of crop.
3: I mean, I think that there's a there's a very common argument out there that with a rapidly growing population, we need these modernizations and industrialized agricultural practices to be able to, quote, feed the world. So how does that kind of, um, you know, how does that match with what you talk about in this report? You know, I mean, if right? Like <laughs> how do you, how do you basically reconcile those two, um, arguments? Like we need, you know, we need larger farms to be able to produce more food.
4: Yes. So I, uh, would like to emphasize that, uh, it's very important that we have enough food in this world, but we also, the problem is that right now we're not actually growing the type of food that would feed the world. Um, so, like I said, corn and soy, that composes 54% of the type of food that we're actually growing in this country. Most of that actually either gets wasted. Um, a lot of it goes to fuel. It goes into ethanol mm-hmm. um, instead of actually to feeding people. Um, most food in this not most food, but 30% of food in this country is actually thrown out right now. Um, So there's a couple of problems with how we're actually growing food on our farms. Um, Like, We're not growing the variety of foods to really make healthy uh, minds and healthy bodies. Um, We're not, and a lot of the food that we are growing is getting dumped or it's going into fuel rather than into people's bellies.
3: One of the things that um, I read was that more than 700 pounds of food are wasted per person in the U.S., and I thought to myself, like, is that right? Could that possibly? <laughs> could that figure possibly yes, I mean, be accurate? I think when
4: we envision that, we envision ourselves throwing out three yeah. hundred pounds of food, which isn't really like, accurate. I know I, know I eat that's a lot, how much but food gets tossed in this country, not how much food you toss <laughs> in this country. Um, so a lot of that, you know, gets dumped at various places along the production line. Uh, it'll get dumped uh, because it's not a pretty kind of fruit or vegetable, right? It gets, gets dumped. Um, before it even hits the market or it gets dumped by the grocery store, Mm -hmm. it gets dumped by the restaurants. And then at home, yes, we do dump a lot of food after it goes bad because we don't eat it uh, fast enough.
3: Um, What are some of the uh, federal policies, you know, like more specifically that have kind of encouraged this way of production, driving farmers towards these larger, more specialized farms?
4: Um, So a couple of things have happened over the past few decades that have created this system. Um, there's something called crop insurance um, subsidies. So what happens is that um, the federal government pays subsidies to farmers to have crop insurance um, for when their farm might f- or when the crop that year might fail. Mm-hmm. Um, in theory, this sounds like a really good idea. We're making sure farmers are protected against loss. The problem and what happens in practice is we see farms consistently not creating the crops that they're claiming they're going to create. Um, For example, there are farms in wetlands um, that are allegedly going to be growing corn in places that are flooded each and every year. Mm -hmm. So for the past 15 years in some uh, farms in South Dakota, they've claimed complete crop loss on those farms. Um, So so for 15 years, they haven't grown anything, and and yet we've been paying these subsidies. So what these subsidies do is that it, it encourages farmers to grow Food in places that doesn't—it doesn't make sense for them to be growing it, and um, then doesn't encourage them to actually produce the food.
3: Mm-hmm. So that
4: seems like a very bad system that we need to be fixing.
3: And is that all farmers, or is that just farmers of like a you know of corn, for instance? Like, do we see vegetable uh, sp- specialty crop uh, producers cl- doing the same thing, kind of claiming the same, uh, you know, making the same false claims, insurance claims?
4: Well, in order to get insurance, you have to um, be able to show that this crop is going to be um, a cash crop. And so it's, it's harder to show that vegetables are a cash crop than it is to show that corn and soy are a cash crop because we know that soy, soy and corn are cash crops, and, and crop insurers know how to handle insuring those kind of farms. So um, I wouldn't say it's you know a particularly evil form of farmers going out there and, and trying to claim Certain crops, it's not like vegetable farmers versus corn. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's that the whole system is geared towards encouraging farmers to grow corn and soy in the first place and then getting this insurance that will encourage them to grow corn and soy in places where corn and soy will not grow.
3: I mean, it seems like crop insurance in general is something that's really important for farmers by and large. Um, There are factors that are very much outside of their control, which, you know, directly affect their ability to um, their livelihood. So what would a what would a more appropriate system look like? And is that can that really happen? I mean, that seems like a really large (laughs) ship to turn to turn around
4: (laughs) so one thing that we suggest in our report is that farmers who participate in subsidized crop insurance should have to adopt best practices that reduce soil loss and prevent water pollution so for example in order to take part in this subsidized crop insurance system you can't grow corn in a wetland that floods every year that would be one idea um, that's a good idea as, as to what, yeah. <laughs> So it would, it would require farmers to take sensible steps before they can get insurance. Um, and whether or not that could happen, um, we think that it can, we think that uh, a lot of, uh, average farmers are realizing that this is silly, that this is absurd, that this is harmful to to their land and to their, the future of farming. And so we think if we can get enough farmers, we can get enough average people to understand what's going on in this country, we can really move the needle on uh, the farm bill in 2018.
3: Does that kind of demonize farmers in a way? I mean, you know, I think that my impression is always that they're operating on razor thin margins, whether or not they're growing uh, commodity crops or specialty crops. And you know, how realistic is it for a farmer who is used to kind of getting some sort of an income, even though they're not growing, the crops are say they're growing. I mean, it seems like they're reliant on this. It's almost like a subsidy from the government um, to survive.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I do not want to demonize farmers. I think that they're stuck in a system that is screwed up and that is set up to, to be an advantage to, crop insurers to be an advantage to things like um, large agrochemical companies, mm-hmm. um, an advantage to makers of you know tractors and combines that are very expensive, um, rather than a system that's meant to benefit the average farmer. Because the average farmer uh, oftentimes will want to grow uh, crops that are good for the soil, that are good for the future of their property, that would be good for their kids to someday take over the farm. And right now, a lot of farmers aren't sure that they can see that as the future. So uh, the the problem with the system is that it's set up for these big, giant factory farms, big, giant uh, purchases of chemicals and equipment, rather than encouraging the growth of the best kinds of food that's the best for the farmer, um, for the consumer, and for the land.
3: In terms of supporting um, things like crop diversification, which is um, one of the things you kind of champion, which will help return nutrients to the soil... Um, and adopt sustainable, just in general, other sustainable practices um, in order to receive federal funding, how, I mean, that sounds expensive. Is is there, <laughs> you know, I mean, you look at like the organic designation, right? And that's even, I mean, that's too expensive for a lot of farmers to be able to mm-hmm. um, to apply and, and receive the official designation. So what kind of support would you advocate for um, to help m- make these, uh recommendations reality
4: so one big thing that we'd like to see is um, money going towards conservation and sustainable programs that the US government has already set up but that they're underfunding and what that would if we would fund those programs better, um, that means that people at the USDA, soil scientists and agricultural scientists could be helping farmers figure out the best plan for their property, um, figuring out where to grow, which type of crop, whether or not it's up on a hill or down in the valley or near, near um, a river. You might have a, make a different decision about what's the best type of crop to grow. And, yeah, that does take time and it does take Money, but the reason we think it's such a good idea is that over time, that actually saves uh, the farmer money and leads to higher production. So, um, so it does take upfront time. It does take upfront consideration. But we've talked to farmers who have done it and who've put in, you know, that upfront work, and they've seen much more successful farms overall. Um, and to be clear, I'm not talking about turning these farms into organic farms. Mm-hmm. talking about turning these farms into sustainable farms, which might mean um, doing a variety of, um, making a variety of decisions on the farm that might not be, quote-unquote, traditionally organic, but that will lead to using a lot less pesticides, that will lead to using a lot less chemical fertilizers, which overall would be better for our water and for our food.
3: Um, some of the things, the other kind of common sense solutions that you talk about relate to the renewable fuel program um, and antibiotics in food production. So I'm wondering if you can kind of break down. First of all, I, I don't really hear a lot about the renewable fuel fuel program. I mean, that could just be me, but, um, can you just like give us a a bit of a breakdown of what it is? Um, and it seems like a policy to me that an example of a policy that like had good intentions, but really ended up having negative repercussions. Um, so can you tell us about like what that is and then how that fits into your broader um, strategy for improving the agriculture system?
4: Yes. I mean, I remember when they, first passed the renewable fuel standard um, a little over a decade ago. I was so excited because we had this vision that we were going to be able to use food instead of oil and our gasoline, and we were going to be Mm -hmm. able to power our cars um, using corn, and that sounded really exciting. Um, Unfortunately, it has not paid off, as you said. Um, The renewable fuel standard, um, the idea was that the U.S. government was going to require um, a certain percentage of all of the fossil fuels sold in this country To contain um, some amount of um, biofuel, which means like basically means corn ethanol, Mm
5: -hmm.
4: Um, and what's happened with this requirement is that now um, we're seeing over 8.4 million acres of land that formerly didn't contain any um, cultivation that didn't contain any farms um, now contains corn. Mm-hmm. Um because there's all this money going towards creating corn to put it into our uh, into our gasoline. The problem is that this has not actually reduced greenhouse gas em- emissions. It turns out that uh, it's not a very renewable fuel um, and that it's just it's just as harmful as fossil fuels. Um, and not only that, it means that we're destroying wetlands and grasslands to plant more corn. So we are monoculture, we just have one type of crop that we're growing all over the country, just corn, 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 corn. Mm -hmm. We're dumping all kinds of pesticides on this corn. Um, We're putting it in our cars. It's still causing greenhouse gases. We're still causing global warming. And then we're also destroying wetlands at the same time. So it seemed like a really great idea. It had some really good intentions, but it hasn't actually led to any of the promises that we were hoping for when it was passed.
3: Um. Yeah, seems like it made matters worse.
4: <laughs> yes, yes, it made matters significantly worse for our wetlands and for our grasslands in this country.
3: And then I also kind of want to just talk just briefly about, you know, getting, digging, drilling down into the um, environmental issues that, um, you know, are contending, uh, you know, that we're seeing um, in terms of our, our system. And you talk about like soil erosion, topsoil erosion and aquaculture. Culture, aquifer depletion. So what's what's the issue with, with each of these and how do the solutions um, that you propose relate to uh, ameliorate these challenges?
4: Um, well, I hate to keep co- talking about how terrible corn can be, but um, the problem with but it is. Like <laughs> growing corn over and over again uh, is that you are not putting uh, nitrogen uh, back into the soil. That's part of why we keep using chemical fertilizers. Um, and so what's going on with just using the same type of uh, crop over and over again, throwing a tractor on top of it, is you're eroding the topsoil. Um, you're getting rid of the thin layer soil that's on the top that's, that's good for growing uh, and that has a lot of nutrients in it. Um, so and then when we're increasing the amount of uh, the, the size of our fields, what we're also doing is we're not putting any breaking points in the fields. So some states, for example, require you to put trees and hedgerows in between fields, um, which is good. That keeps your topsoil from blowing away. Mm-hmm. But many states don't require that, <laughs> and it's not a federal requirement um, for most for most farms. So we have these huge cornfields without anything stopping the wind and the water and floods from just blowing in, getting rid of all of the topsoil. Um, and this topsoil, by the way, takes literally thousands and thousands of years to create so it's not like we can just be like ah, let's dump some more topsoil on it it's okay (laughs) this topsoil goes away and it doesn't come back um so we're first of all we're getting rid of the topsoil which we need to have farms in the long run right like 20 years from now we need that topsoil to grow more you know whatever it is we need to grow whether or not it's corn or whether or not it's lettuce or wheat we need topsoil so um, that's a huge problem then then uh, also we take something like corn that takes a lot of water, it takes a lot of irrigation. Where is that going to come from when you're in the middle of the Midwest and there's no water, um, you know, in the middle of July? Well, you go to your aquifers. So my home state of Oklahoma, for example, um, uses the Ogallala Aquifer, um, and we've pretty much depleted it, um, and, and scientists have been warning us about this for decades. But if you don't have any water anywhere else, where are you going to take it from the aquifer?
3: Wouldn't any crops require irrigation, or are you saying it's just because we're growing certain crops in inappropriate regions for that for that crop?
4: Exactly, yeah. We're, we are not doing the kind of soil science, science and agricultural science that would make us determine what should we grow in this particular grassland, what should we grow in this particular area that maybe we shouldn't grow anything because maybe it's the desert. Mm-hmm. And being from Oklahoma and, and having grandparents who lived through the Great Depression and still seeing land that's been um, you know, has been abandoned since the Great Depression, I can, I can see in my mind very clearly, like, let's not grow anything here. This is just <laughs> this is a wasteland. Um,
5: yeah.
4: But then a couple years later, you'll see a wheat farmer come in and, and grow wheat there. And you're like, wow, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because of aquifers. Um, so that, that can be scary.
3: It's funny. I think that there's a general misconception in this country that vegetables, I mean, veg, vegetable production in this country happens in the Northeast in California, right? But I think that, and then you see a lot of commodity crops in the, in the middle, but I, and I think that there's a big misconception that that's what has to happen, you know, in terms of our, you know, the weather practices or geology or whatever, um, you know, the environment like requires it. But I think it, it seems like you can grow much more in um, many, many more vegetables throughout the country.
4: To go, to go back to my grandparents' example, you know, um, ten miles from my grandparents' farm was the desert, but they lived near the Red River, so they would grow a wide variety of fruits and vegetables because they lived near the water. Mm-hmm. So there are places, and particular parts of the country, all over the country, where you can grow a variety of fruits and vegetables. And that's absolutely the case. But it does take some thought and some planning to figure out where you can grow what. And that's the key that we're missing right now in a lot of farms, because farmers are almost required to grow these cash crops, and they don't have a lot of other choices.
3: And they might not, you know, might not be the best thing for the land. Sounds like. Exactly. Okay, so we're going to take a really quick commercial break and um, hear word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we'll be joined by Seth Watkins, who is a fourth generation Iowa farmer implementing the types of sustainable farming practices proposed in this report. Stay tuned.
1: I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Circhois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Sitari's Black Pepper Bellavitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese. With lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk, fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards— to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
3: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Kara Col- Kara Cook Schultz about the report she co-authored called Reaping What We Sow, How the Practices of Environmental, or of Industrial Agriculture Put Our Health and Environment at Risk I also now want to welcome to the show Seth Watkins, who's a fourth generation Iowa farmer, to talk a little bit about how he is implementing some of these practices um, suggested in Kara's report uh, Seth, welcome to the show Thank you. Why did you decide to stay in the farming industry? Um, can you give us a little bit of a background about how you got involved and what made you decide to um, pursue this, this line of work?
6: You know, it, it's kind of funny, but I think when I was 11, I we had a calf born on a pretty bad day, and I, I brought it into the house and warmed it up. and. And, you know, gave it a bottle and, and things like that. So was, he lost his mom, so it's a little orphan calf. And, oh. and I like, I love caring for livestock. And I guess from that point on, I knew I wanted to raise cattle. And um, I found out though over time what I really love is caring for the land. And for the type of land we have, um, at least at this point, ruminant animals like cattle or goats or sheep are a really big part of that. And it's the best way we've found to care for it. For the kind of land we have,
3: um, and so you, to that to that end, um, what kind of food do you grow, and and um, you know, animals do you raise? Do you have a, a wide array, or uh... you know,
6: we're really not. We're primarily beef cattle, so we have a, a cow calf, what's called a beef cow calf operation, mm-hmm. and those calves um, will graze for some time, and then they'll spend uh, a short point of their life still in a in more traditional feedlot setting. You know, the last couple of months in their life where they're finished out to. The certain standards that, you know, a high-quality choice product. But the cows and uh, the cows spend their whole lives on grass, and then the calves um, every year spend a little bit more of their lives on it. We're trying to find ways to graze longer, but it's not always, you know, it's finding that sweet spot in the market. It's what we try to do.
3: What kind of practices do you implement in the, uh, you know, specifically that are kind of outlined and championed in, in this report?
6: Sure, I'd say a few things we've learned um, that have really paid off. One, we use a, a practice called integrated pest management, which means that, you know, years ago the the common practice was simply to spray everything and kill all the weeds. And um, when you really look at that, it certainly doesn't make sense in what Mother Nature would have done. So, first of all, we don't uh, we only spray a weed if it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So, selective management there. We've incorporated legumes into all our pastures so that we basically have the ability to produce our own nitrogen instead of having to buy synthetic nitrogen that can go on and cause other problems. It's, once again, just following nature's lead. And that's a great, not only an ecological solution, but an economical one as well And that it, you know, it saves me considerably considerable money on input cost and also makes a much better quality forage. So the cool thing that happens is now, since we've quit spraying so much, we've got this great diversity in our pastures and it's brought back wonderful birds and it's brought back um, plants and species that we haven't seen for a long, long time around here. And that's kind of exciting to see, I guess for lack of better words, how forgiving Mother Nature really is if you give her a chance.
3: Is this always been um, the way that you have, that, you know, on, on your family's land that you have you know your your approach to farming or has it kind of changed over the years no
6: it's, it's evolved over time um we went through in 98 we had a really really bad blizzard and up until that point i'd really tried to do things i don't know how would you say it? the way the industry expected you to do things you know and, and in that case it was more dependence on chemicals um more dependence on really intensive management that required more antibiotics. It was more dependence on, um, you know, one of the practices was calving cows in February that uh, it just doesn't seem like a real natural thing to do, but if everyone's telling you to do it, you do. Mm -hmm. And we this blizzard hit, and it was calving season, and everyone worked very, very hard, and it was something that I didn't like seeing the cows go through. I didn't like seeing my helpers go through. I didn't like it, and I decided at that point And I was young enough to make a decision like that, I just decided that I was going to build a system that gave me happy cows, clean water, and healthy soil, and a system that was focused on stewardship instead of production. My feelings were that if all the experts were right and I went broke, Uh um, I was okay with that because I felt like I was doing right by the cows and I was doing right by the land, and uh, so be it. I could only sleep at night with that decision, and instead what happened is we actually became uh, more profitable, and we saw a slight production increase because we were paying attention to mother nature and focusing on stewardship. I think a lot of it in agriculture, we we have this huge pressure to focus on production, but when you look at what farms really are, farms are living systems, and living systems... When you manage living systems, you have to focus on doing a lot of little things. Well, living systems are sustained by natural resources. Mm-hmm. And when you start focusing on protecting those natural resources instead of working about, worrying about production, what i found is that other things fall into place.
3: So taking a more of a longer-term approach than than short-term thinking.
6: Yeah, you, yeah, you do. You have to take – that's a great way of putting it. It's uh, – I, I hope no one goes into farming to get rich. I mean, it's a really <laughs> my business for one. What you? Can... <laughs> uh, but I think the the important thing goes back again when we focus on caring for those resources that really sustain our farms:
5: mm-hmm.
6: rainfall, soil, sunlight. You know, human ingenuity.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, things start to work out, and a lot of times, when managed properly.
3: You can these it can resources
6: be. Do a lot of the products I produce to actually find optimum levels.
3: So I'm wondering um, if since 1998 you have felt um, you've kind of doubted your decision to move in a more sustainable direction and mm-hmm. you felt like you wanted to kind of give in to some of these pressures to simply just expand the farm um, and, and do, you know, implement practices that would encourage growing the farm rather, um, you know operating at a sustainable level that was healthier for the land and the animals.
6: Yeah. Since 98, we have focused on on caring for the land. Now, what we have seen, though, is we've actually been able to... Um, we've actually been able to maintain our, our production and actually increase it a little bit just because other things are falling into place um, in a better way. Um,
3: so you, you haven't felt like... Um you know, you haven't kind of wanted to reverse that decision um, at any point, like.
6: Okay, there I got you. Yeah. No, I have not. The hardest thing, the only thing that has been really hard for us, has been more since about 2008, especially um, with the renewable fuel standard and some some things with with farming in general and part of its demographic. There's been huge pressure placed on farmers to raise more corn, regardless of the type of land they have. Mm
5: -hmm. So,
6: you know, the best way I can describe this now, we're in a part of Iowa that is very steep, ancient soils, very erodible land. We're not really well suited for it yet. The Farm Bill tries to be kind of one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So, the way I put this, like if someone is north of us in the Des Moines Lobe and some of those really rich, productive areas, I think that, and if I lived up there, I would raise corn and and as much as I could, because it's really a perfect area for it. Mm -hmm. But the sad thing is that, for some reason, our farm bill does not seem to recognize that not every part of Iowa is perfect for raising corn. Mm -hmm. And the pressure that I faced more so, um, we would like to expand and raise more cattle and, and be able to graze our calves longer, but that takes more land, and we have kind of an artificial competition. Um, on some of this very marginal ground because there are incentives and there are programs in place to encourage raising corn instead of grazing uh,
3: so I have a question so about when you're when the um, cow reaches maturity or, or the point at which um, you know it is going to be uh, processed mm-hmm. you said you you they they spend um, their last kind of time in a, in a feedlot Mm-hmm. What is that like? A confined? Is that what we think
6: of as no, a calf? We, we run open pens, and, and they're not. You know, it's it's I, I it's not confinement. Um, it's uh, it's the best way we've got to do it right now. Is how I would describe that. Um, my favorite scenario, if you know, if we had the space and the land, would be to simply uh, let the cattle run out and feed them some grain while they're grazing. Mm-hmm. But um it's pretty it's pretty much a standard um you know there's things it's it's interesting to me to see the things we've learned over the years just the way you care for the lots and put bedding down and things like that some husbandry skills that really help with it but it's uh it's a scenario that is that fits for what we do right now i think the thing that i always talk about sustainability is about continuous improvement so as i study this and look at what we see going forward um, and I see some of, the, some of the expectations of consumers, you know, whether it's Walmart who wants to take a gigaton of carbon out of the supply chain or it's McDonald's that wants to be antibiotic free. Um, I think we're going to see scenarios where we graze those calves on cover crops and things like that longer. Uh, I think we're going to see some scenarios where just grazing in general is going to have to come into play. And, and I like that, you know, personally. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, that's where we're at right now.
3: Right. Absolutely. And then do you know where the your animals go after they are processed, or do you have visibility to that step in the supply chain?
6: Uh, you know, no, I really don't. I know, I know that they go to different, you know, different packers, get the bids and mm-hmm. buy them, and then they go on into, uh, you know, I know that ours go into a higher end market. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that, you know, I've thought about this a lot, there are incredible efficiencies with the system we have. I mean, and I've seen that in terms one of the things that I do appreciate um, is there isn't any waste within, you know, a packing plant or things like that. They find product use and things to do with the calves that sometimes when we tried to go at a local level and process our calves locally and go into those local markets, We've had a lot of waste, and I, I hate seeing that. I feel like, you know, A, the cap should only have one bad day, mm-hmm. and B, I feel like it's not doing right by that cap if we don't use everything that's there in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been really, that part of it, I guess I see as a positive. I would love to figure out a way that we could have more a a way that the calves you know could be killed at home or closer to home Mm -hmm. but when you get into the scheme of keeping the end product the the meat affordable and the other products you use and things like that right now I guess what's important is that we just keep working on ways that would make sure that the animals are handled properly and in a manner that you know is is not stressful to them and some of those things first that's kind of my priority.
3: Absolutely. And then
6: on you know selling the meat too it's um, I think one thing that's that is good, is that the, what we sell is very safe. Mm-hmm. But uh, it doesn't mean we can't find better ways to do it, would be the best way I'd say that.
3: Um,
6: uh, uh, you know, and someday maybe grass fed will become more and more dominant too um, as a market. Right now we kind of see 50 50 on that with people, what they like and don't like. Um, and that those was are things to, to work out.
3: That's something that I wanted to ask to bo- both of you in terms of. Um, consumer purchasing practices and consumer demand. So Seth, I'm wondering for you personally, have you seen an uptick in the, um, you know, support from like a consumer side or even like a retail side um, for products um, that are, you know, your animals that are grown in a certain way. So sustainably.
6: I'm seeing more um, on a larger scale, I am seeing more consumer expectation for these things, and that's good. I'm, you know, I always say that when we really start talking about our food system, our food system will change with consumers' expectations and their demands. And and obviously, we see the growth in these markets. Mm-hmm. The the part I really struggle at with personally, and like I said earlier, you know, I didn't I didn't get into farming to get rich because it's not that kind of business.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: I just struggle with some of the people I know that don't have super high income, and I want to make sure that that really make a difference in my life, like the nurse that took care of my mom when she was in the nursing home, or, or the paraprofessionals that helps my son. These are people that don't make a lot of money, but they're great people. And I know they can't afford to go to the store and pay 16 to $30 a pound for, for beef. Mm-hmm but they can go into our local supermarket and get a really good product for an average of five or $6 a pound. There's no question in my mind, there's some externalities that go with that, you know, not the whole nother discussion per se, but I guess I just want to make sure those people I really care about can always have a good, safe, affordable product. I could see a time as we get better at grazing and better at the distribution that maybe they will be able to go buy that product at, a, at a, an affordable price. But right now, it just seems like that premium, as much as I'd like to capitalize on it myself, i feel like it wasn't fair to those people I really cared about.
3: I think the solution is more of a direct-to-consumer, farm-to-consumer um, operation, uh, sort mm-hmm. of cutting out some of the middlemen. I'm totally biased because I happen to work for uh, startup that is a doing just that. It's kind of cutting out the middleman. It's an online farmers market, and we connect consumers directly to uh, farmers and growers in mm-hmm. a way that is, you know, kind of eliminates a lot of. It's, it the, makes the supply chain very short. And so, I'm hoping that that is. I firmly believe that that's an opportunity to be able to get consumers more affordable, higher quality, um, you know, food in a way that yep. benefits, you know, the growers and and the consumers.
6: I think it is, and I think it goes down to, once again, to the issue of is finding a way to process that calf. So, you know, the one of the meat's only what, uh, uh, when you get said and done, you're only talking about half the weight of the animal's meat.
5: Mm-hmm. So
6: if you can find a way to use all those other products, then I think it can really be done, and it, it can be. And I think that's sometimes, though, what we don't always think about on that end, because I'd love to... I think it'd be awesome if I could do something like that. Um, one of the tough things we face, too, of course, in the country is just access to enough customers to make it work, so to speak. And mm-hmm. then, and then, you know, one of the things we've run into on that, um, when we have direct market it is, I've said, well, you know, would you accept a frozen product? Because when, going back to working with Mother Nature, a lot of people want this fresh meat every single month. Mm-hmm. Yet, that really goes against the laws of nature in terms of my supply chain, because... We really need to have calves in the on the warm spring days, which means, you know, a year and a half later, we'll have lots of meat available in, say, August or September. And then, but what we've run into in the past is someone saying, well, I want fresh, not frozen. Right. And then I'm kind of like trying to figure out how to manage that part of the supply chain it, doesn't mean it can't be done, but it gets into kind of an unnatural setting. That right, you, right. You know, nothing's easy, unfortunately. No,
3: nope, that's true. We do sell frozen.
6: <laughs> yeah. And so. I, if people are good with frozen, man, I can really work with them, you know, and, yeah. and that's, a, that's a, a, a way to make that work.
3: Kara, I want to know, um, I wanted to ask you. Um, actually I wanted to ask you kind of your perspective you write in the report that consumers are really in, in you know expressing an increased preference for this kind of sustainably produced food and I'm my, my question is like are they really like what evidence have you seen <laughs> have you seen um, to support that statement
4: Yes so since 1997 uh, the uh, demand for organic food has gone up 10 times so that the organic market is now $39 billion a $39 billion-a-year market,
5: mm-hmm.
4: um, and a majority of Americans buy organic some of the time.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, I think most Americans are probably like me, and they don't always buy organic, right? right. <laughs> but most Americans do buy organic some of the time. So there are clearly Americans out there who care about where their food comes from and what's on their food. Um, so the problem is what Seth is saying is as the expense. But um, something we point out in the report is how much taxpayers are paying to have food filled with pesticides. So we're paying for it through water cleanup, through increased cost of fish, because mm-hmm. fish are dying. We're paying uh, for it through um, putting all these subsidies into making, you know, the, this renewable fuel standard that's actually causing more greenhouse uh, gases. And this is this is billions of dollars a year to the American taxpayer. So. There, there are things we could be doing to decrease the cost to the taxpayer while increasing the availability of sustainable food.
3: I love that. Um, okay, so we only have time for a couple more questions. Um, I could, obviously, I would love to continue this conversation forever. My first of the final few questions that I have um, is that, you know, the reality for most Americans is that we're busy and, you know, we don't really know how to cook or prioritize it or whatever. I mean, the upshot is that most people eat out quite a bit, um, certainly more than they ever have in the past. Um, So is there an opportunity for consumers, you know, is there like a happy medium or, or, or an opportunity for consumers who do eat out quite a bit of the time to support these kinds of sustainable farming practices through the food that they, you know, through voting with their fork? Like, how do you marry those two realities?
4: Yes. Yeah, so I think you're asking if, if you um, eat out a lot, how do you influence the kind of food that you're buying? I'm sorry. But-
3: yeah, no, no, that's, I mean, my question was a little convoluted. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, like the reality is okay. that people eat out a lot. And so how right. do we actually move the needle on, on some of these issues to encourage people to continue to purchase sustainably produced food? Um, if they, if they really eat out, like, is there a happy medium? Mm-hmm.
4: Well, believe it or not, there's actually a lot you can do as a consumer at restaurants to uh, make a huge impact on our food production system. So, for example, in the area of antibiotics, Mm -hmm. we've seen huge movement in the past three to four years. um, Because of consumer demand, Uh, McDonald's, Subway, Panera have all agreed to stop using uh, chicken raised uh, without the routine use of antibiotics. And uh, you know, right now we're trying to get them to, uh, we're trying to get McDonald's to stop using beef raised with the routine use of antibiotics. Uh, and I mean, that that has been huge just because of consumer pressure. Yeah. Um. Just in a few years.
3: Absolutely, and that's a huge impact, right, in terms of scale. That's yeah. absolutely right. Okay, final couple of questions was are relate to the committee hearing. Um, what was the reaction to your to your report? Um. And then I want to know where the pushback came from. <laughs> from.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, what? It, what? So, it, how was it received? The the idea behind uh, releasing our report, when we did, is that we want to get this data out there in one place mm-hmm. so that you know average people and lawmakers can go to it and say, okay, here's everything that we need to be addressing with the food system. And so some lawmakers uh, on Wednesday at this hearing where they were talking about agriculture and the future of of uh, Chemicals in agriculture. Uh, They used it to ask questions to people like, you know, the head of the Cattlemen's Association, for example, the American Cattlemen's Association. Um, and I think that, that in that way, it was it was good that it was out there and, and could be used by uh, certain senators. But yeah, definitely, other people uh, <laughs> they don't want to hear that nope. we need to change in our food system, um, which isn't a surprise I think to me or to probably many of your listeners that there's going to be some resistance.
3: No, definitely concept. not. Any yeah. any senators in particular who we can um, you know just have awareness of who are giving pushback to these really important facts and figures and the reality of our agricultural system? Let's just call them out
4: like the the actual people yes
3: yes anyone uh, that we should have on our radar to um, lobby for instance as uh, you know as constituents
4: Um, I would say actually rather than calling out just specific people I would say everyone should be (laughs) lobbying uh, their representative and their senators right now Mm -hmm. about this because as much as I cared about the environment and public works hearing on this issue. I care more about the final vote on the farm bill that's mm-hmm. going to be coming out sometime hopefully this year. Um, and every senator, and every representative is going to be re- uh, involved in some way, shape, or form in that vote. And if they don't hear from the aver- their average constituents that they want to see healthier water and healthier farms, um, then it doesn't really matter what the you know, a couple of people at the EPW hearing said it matters what your local lawmaker is going to end up voting on.
3: Absolutely. Very well said. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, but Kara and Seth, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. You're welcome, Lynn Thank, you. Thank mm-hmm. you. All right, um, for to read the report, uh, reaping what we sow, um, you can find it on PIRG's website, which is uspirgedfund.org. I want to give a big thanks to our supporters for their generous support, as well as our um, for. Our so big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support as well as our engineer Vitor Hirsch. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and uh, let us know what you think. Leave us a comment. I'm Jenna Liute and thank you for listening.